morning. I am super excited to be with you this morning. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's been a long time coming. Um, yeah, I'm so encouraged too by the words that have come through, and, and I'll, I'll touch on that at different points, but it's just amazing to me. So it's good to be with you. Um, we are a, a Canadian family, hence the accent. Sorry, I can't lose it. Um, I've tried, but it doesn't work. And, uh, and so we originally came here to South Africa in 2013. We've been here six years now. And we came to work with uh, an organization called Hope Africa. We're serving as missionaries. So we have a church in Canada that has uh, sent us and prayed over us and, uh, and commissioned us to go. And specifically, they've sent us to go and work alongside pastors and churches to equip local pastors so that they can effectively build the kingdom through their church that God has given them shepherding responsibility over. And so at Hope Africa, I've been doing this with a team. I've got a, a team there of pastors from the community that I've been, you know, building into as they have been reaching into the community. And we've also had the chance to do this while offering opportunity to people in the community. And what I mean by that is we have, a, we have the church programs. So we have a Bible school for pastors. We have discipleship programs for pastors. Um, we have a number of evangelism programs where we train people in. But we get to do this alongside practical training as well. So people come to us and we teach them small business and how to do hair and open a hair salon or how to do welding or carpentry or electrical or plumbing. Um, we have a big computer lab and we help young people get back into university or studies or those sort of things. And so we open up those opportunities for the pastors and churches to be able to come with their people in their church that are struggling to be able to give them a, a chance to overcome poverty in their lives. And it's been amazing to me, you know, just standing here. Um, I come from a dairy farm in rural Canada. <laughs> you know, the, my next door neighbor was like two kilometers that way and two kilometers that way. And I'll be honest, all I wanted in life as I was growing up and as a teenager, I wanted to make money and buy lots of stuff because that would make, that's a good life. <laughs> and that's the bubble that I grew up in. And it is amazing to me, and I'm not going to dive lots into this, but it's amazing to me how, how God has moved and shifted and changed my life from what I envisioned it to be to what he wants it to be. I didn't grow up thinking of the nations, you know. I didn't grow up thinking about South Africa. And yet, here I am, and, and God has called me in this place to, to, to do, you know, to, to minister and to do what he's asked me to do. And, and so I want to say that Especially as a foreigner walking into this context this morning, I want to say this is an open invitation from me. If we finish today and you're like, man, that guy had some strange ideas, you know, call me up. You can get my number from Ryan. Um, I'd love to do coffee. I'd love to talk more. You know, why missions? Why South Africa? I'm not going to touch on these things today, but how did we end up here? Um, my sister, my blood sister, my younger sister actually married a Mosa man a couple of years ago from Umflaney originally from Eastern Cape, you know, so how did I get a closer brother-in-law? Um, those are all different stories. Yeah, I never got paid Labola, that's a shame. Um, you know, before we came to South Africa six years ago, we came and we thought it would be wise to study the history of the nation. And so we read about the history of the nation. We read about the sand people and the Khoikhoi people, and we read about colonization and strange guys like that. Um, and we read about many wars, and we read about apartheid, and we read about Nelson Mandela, and we read about 1994 and freedom. And it was 2013, and we're thinking, that's 20 years ago. That's fantastic. You know, um, we're so great, or glad that that's in the past. And so we arrived here with the false assumption that apartheid, or separateness, was over. And the first year here, one of the hardest lessons that we learned was that apartheid continues. Apartheid continues. And it took repeated incidents that first year to just kind of smack you to say, whoa, 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 what's, what's happening there? One example of that would be 
literally the, the first black man I met in South Africa, I greeted him and he said to me, good morning, boss. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you calling me boss? I'm not your boss. And it was such a weird thing to me because I'd never been addressed or given a title based on my skin color before. It was such a strange thing to me that I did engage with him in conversation. Why are you calling me boss? I mean, this is just bizarre. And he didn't know what to do with me pushing back on that because that was just strange for him. And since that point in time, you know, I've, I've had that sort of thing happen many times. Regularly now, I'm the first time I meet someone, I'm called boss or sir or something like that. And, <laughs> and while those things happen in our world, those things happen in the culture around us, we cannot allow those things to come into the kingdom. Okay, so God hasn't called us to prioritize every time you get into a conversation with someone and you recognize this person is functioning according to the greater culture around them. They're functioning, they're thinking, they're speaking the way is normal in their culture. I don't believe we need to go and tell everybody out there, you know, every time that happens, you're doing it wrong, sorry. But do not let that thinking come into the church. Do not let that kind of thinking come into the church. In the church, no man is another man's boss or sir because of their position in the outside world. And so apartheid is no longer enforced by politics. But apartheid continues because many other spheres of society still function under separateness. The economy, education, healthcare, geography, and the biggest by far is culture. Culture keeps separateness going. And here in the church, we have a head who is Jesus. Jesus is the king, and he is coming to build a bride for himself to establish his kingdom here on the earth. And if there is a foundation as to why it's worth it to talk about this, it's because there's a king and he's building his kingdom, and he's told us what he wants his kingdom to look like. That alone is enough cause to talk about something that can be awkward or difficult. You know, often when I speak to people, they'll say, ah, I don't want to hear about apartheid. You know, that's, I don't even want to hear that word. It's just, it's too old, it's past, it's 25 years ago now. Um, my, I wasn't even alive then, maybe. Why do we want to talk about this morning? I want to talk about this morning because it's the prevailing pattern of this culture and if we do not look to our king and how he wants to build his kingdom we'll naturally build it the way we're used to the way it happens around us Jesus has given us instructions on what his kingdom ought to look like and those instructions reflect the very nature of who God is they reflect the very nature of who God is and so my goal this morning very simply is for us to hear from our king for us to hear from Jesus what he wants his kingdom to look like, especially as it relates to cross-cultural church partnerships in 412. Now that's a bit of a mouthful. Cross-cultural church partnerships in 412. CCCP, you know? It's like an old Russian joke. But uh, um, I said that to Ross Lahana yesterday, who's the lead elder now in Weinberg, and he said... Uh, um, you should change the name. You should call it Bridging the Gap. I thought, ah, you're on to something, you know? That's what we want to do. We want to bridge the gap. Not because we're motivated by some, I don't know, social reconciliation project. Our motivation comes from our king and building his kingdom his way. You see, the kingdom of God is being filled up today with a new people who come from all sorts of different backgrounds, different cultures, um, different social economic classes, different divisions according to the world. But in Christ, we have been given new primary identities. Do we really know that this morning? In Christ, we've been given new primary identities. Your primary identity is not that you're Hosa. It's not that you're Zulu. It's not that you're Zim. It's not that you're Afrikaans. Your primary identity is that you're a son or daughter of the king. Your primary identity is found in Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom. Even more than that, we are heirs in this kingdom. I mean, that's incredible to me. 
Jesus gives us the privilege of being heirs to his kingdom. So he's called us his sons and daughters. He's given us the rights of citizenship. And he says, actually, you are heirs to the very kingdom that I am building. God has not called us to build his kingdom according to the pattern of this world. This is a critical place for us to start. We need to recognize that God has not called us to build his kingdom according to the pattern of this world. Amen. The first scripture I want to read is from Romans chapter 12. Now, this morning, really unrelated to my message, I was doing my quiet time and I was reading in Romans chapter 11. And a verse caught my attention in Romans 11, and I wasn't intending to share it, but then we sung the exact words in the worship, so now I don't have much choice. Um, So we'll start a couple verses sooner than I was intending. But as we jump into this, I also just think it's critical when we open the Word of God to pause and to say, what am I reading? Who am I and who is the author of this book? It is way too easy to to pick up the Bible, roll with this or that, and then jump back into what you want to say. Or here. It's way too easy. I've I've heard these verses before, but this guy talking with a Canadian accent, he's a bit strange, so it's easier to pay attention, but just actually miss what the Word of God says. And when we do that, we've got it backwards. This is what we need to prioritize and listen to. Just, I mean, just pause for a moment and think about that. The creator of heaven and earth. Almighty God has written down a book with his words for you and I to learn about him. Every time we read the word of God, that should overwhelm us as we approach it. And so I'll start a little sooner. Romans chapter 11, the last couple verses. Actually, the last verse, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. I had never noticed before that that's the words of the song, but it is. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And what's happening here is Paul at the end of Romans chapter 11, I mean, he's finished building 12 chapters of this huge argument about the salvation of man, about God's free gift that he sends, about how God loved us and we were stuck in our sin about how vast and wide and how incredible God's love is. And then it gets to this point of Romans chapter 12, and he says, therefore, considering all these things. So Romans chapter 12 is actually the key dividing point of this book. He's built an argument right up till the end of chapter 11, and he starts chapter 12. So he's just finished saying, from him, through him, to him are all things, to him be the glory. Then he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers... Brian spoke this over us before. In view of God's mercy. So considering how God has set us free from sin. Considering how God has loved us and we were stuck in that sin. How we are undeserving of his salvation. Considering those things in view of his mercy. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then verse 2 is the one I really want us to pay attention to this morning. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Way too often we have learned cultural habits from the pattern of this world that we also allow to function in the church. I'll give you an example of this. Often when I'm speaking to people about the the work we're doing in the township, you know, people will respond and they'll say something like, well, it's just too difficult to worship cross-culturally. They like to do things their way. We like to do things our way. You know, they like a type of song that is very repetitive and um, goes for a long time. We like songs like this. They like to do things their way. We like to do things our way. It's just too difficult to worship cross-culturally. But 
Is that a picture of the kingdom? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, these are verses that are often quoted, but I just, I want us to read them considering what we've just read in Romans. And so it says that after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want to ask you this morning, if you've, ever, if, if you've ever thought, you know, they can worship their way and I can worship, you know, we'll worship our way. Someday when we get there, And we're standing before the throne and people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are worshiping God together. Are you going to pull back and say, you know what, they can worship their way. I'm just going to wait a little bit and next hour is Hillsong Bethel hour. That's how I'm comfortable and I'm going to worship that way. They can worship their way, I'll worship my way. No. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. This world tells us well, let's just live in, in relative peace. You do it your way, I'll do it my way. That's a pattern from this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. I love that word that came through of the washing of your mind. You know what? I, in fact, I felt a bit like you, the Holy Spirit through you, uh, stole my message. So, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, the washing of our mind. So that we do not think according to the pattern of the world around us. But instead, we have our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit. And as our minds are renewed by the Holy Spirit, when someone comes to us and says, Ah, you worship your way, I worship my way. We test it and we say, is that God's will? Is that the picture we see? Is that how God wants it to be? And if it's not, then we say, look, I'm sorry, in in the kingdom... That just cannot stand as a valid reason not to worship together. Andrew Seeley, who, for those of you who are, are new to Josh Gen, is the leader of Joshua Generation in 412. I didn't know that was funny, but... Seeley. <laughs> okay, now I understand. <laughs> Yeah, pro- pro- international problems, you know? <laughs> but he often speaks, he many times I've heard him speak about taking every thought captive. And it comes from first, uh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. You have it up on the screen. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sel- sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. It's so easy to have these little thoughts creep in of, ah, we'll let them worship their way, we'll worship our way. No, we stop and we take that thought captive and we say, does that fit with the mind of Christ? Does that follow the pattern of this world? Or does that follow how Christ has established his kingdom? 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16. My brother here also quoted this verse for me. See, he was getting too far ahead. Um, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How important it is for us this morning that as we consider these things, as we consider bridging the gap or cross-cultural church partnerships, that we do it with the mind of Christ. And so as we talk about this topic, I want us to wrestle with a difficult question. Fairly and honestly, does the church of Cape Town more reflect the pattern of apartheid or does it more reflect the pattern of the kingdom of heaven? Do us as the churches of Cape Town, how we function, how we operate, do we more reflect the pattern of apartheid, of separateness, or do we more reflect the pattern of the kingdom of heaven? Before we arrived here in 2013, and we knew we were coming here, we prayed, God, when we get to South Africa, help us to find a church to join that brings the people of the nation together. 
as a reflection of your kingdom. We don't want to join a church that's stuck sort of in the pattern of the past. We want to join a church that brings the people of the nation together. And so we arrived, we landed here, and uh, we went to the first church, and, and it was a white church, and it was only a white church. And we went to the second church, and it was a black church, and only a black church. And we've a few times been to, to colored churches where there's only colored people in the church. Finally, actually, we did get to a church. Oh, that's my first smell of bacon there. Ah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, yeah, take that captive, bacon. Um, <laughs> You know, finally we did get to a church where at least we thought when we walked in, hey, praise God, this church is bringing the people of South Africa together. There's black and colored and white people in one church. But then as we got to know the church more, we quite quickly discovered actually pretty much all the black people in the church were not South African. They were Mozambican, they were Zimbabwean, they were Malawian. They still were not bringing the people of South Africa together. I'm not saying that's bad. You know, praise God that they're there together. But it's still not bringing, it's not breaking the pattern of this nation and submitting it to the kingdom of God. And so not finding such a church, really what we did is I dove into ministry in the township. And so I've spent six years every day in the township, working with pastors and churches and coming alongside them just to encourage them in the work of the Lord. Sorry, overhearing my son. But during this time, I often prayed. And, I, and I'll be honest, I didn't know how. But I often just prayed, God, before our time is up in South Africa. I don't know how long you have us here. Before our time is up in South Africa, use us to bring your body, your bride together. Use us to bring the church together. And one year passed, nothing happened. Two years, nothing. Three years, nothing. Four years, nothing. In year five... Through something, again, how we didn't plan anything. But during this time, we'd been going to Josh Jen. We'd loved how Josh Jen had been doing church. But Josh Jen and my world were very separate. But I had gone to the 412 conference in October a couple times, and I loved it. And I thought, why don't, why don't I this year, this is 2017, why don't I this year bring some of the pastors with at the very least, it's an opportunity for them to get to know some brothers and sisters in Christ from around Cape Town and from around the world. And also, it's an opportunity for them to be exposed to worship, to teaching that's outside of their pattern of their culture. I've come to realize everybody grows up in a bubble. You know, me on my dairy farm, I'm not the only one. Everyone grows up in a bubble. It's just a different bubble. And people who come... When you meet a, a believer from a different background, it's incredible how God has been able to teach them different things. And we'll touch more on that a bit later. But we came to 412 then in 2017 with 35 pastors from the township. And when we got there, what we didn't know is that God had been stirring Andrew and Will's heart. God had been stirring their hearts. And when we walked in the doors, they had been praying for a number of months, God help us to find a way to work into the township. And we were completely unaware of that. And Will met with us in a large room upstairs, and we had our first sort of incredible God moment. As Will addressed the pastors, and, and we just got started to get to know one another. And since that time, it's been amazing to see how God has been answering a prayer that we were praying, but did not see how anything could change. Now, as we keep digging deeper on this, I want us to see as well, this is not a new challenge to the church. Not only is this not a new challenge to the church, it's happening all over the world. Last year when I was at home in Canada, I had the opportunity to spend a, a couple hours with a pastor from in, India. And I got to speak just a little bit about what God was starting to do with 412 working into the township. And he just said to me in the spot, Mike, I need you to come to India and share that testimony. He said, the denomination that I oversee has like 100 churches from this people group and 100 churches from this people group, and they hate each other. And so I want us to see this is not a South Africa problem. The new believers in the first century, they were also divided by many significant ways 
according to the pattern of their culture. They were divided between Jews and Gentiles. They were divided between masters and slaves. They were divided between barbarians, Scythians, and Roman citizens. And one of the major reasons that Paul even wrote the whole book of Romans that we're reading from here was to help the church know how to function together between Jews and Gentiles. So, the church in Rome was planted primarily by Jewish Christians. An an emperor named Claudia, he came into power and he kicked the Christians out of Rome. And that's how Aquila and Priscilla ended up in the various Gentile churches where Paul met up with them. And anyways, while the Jews have been kicked out of Rome... Back in Rome, as the church continues to grow, it's now Gentiles who are rising up in the church, who are taking on eldership and and leadership in the church. And once we get closer to when the book of Romans is written, Claudia is no longer the emperor, and many of the Jewish Christians have started to return to the capital city. And as they've returned to the city, they've realized this is a very different church than I left. When I left, us, the Jewish Christians, were the majority, we were the leaders. Now as they are returning, the majority are Gentile Christians. The leadership is Gentile Christians. And Paul could have easily looked at this situation and said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is just going to get way too complicated. Why don't we do it this way? In this part of the city, you Jews, you meet with your church. And in this part of the city, you Gentiles, you meet with your church. It's far too difficult to have you coming together as one. In the similar way, Paul could have said, you know, it's just too difficult in the church to have masters and slaves together in one church. So we're just going to start a new church over here for the masters, and we're going to start a new church over here for the slaves. It's way too complicated bringing them together. But Paul never says this. He's not willing to follow the division that was dominant in his culture, the pattern of his culture. In fact, he says, out there in the world, you might be called a slave, but when you come into the kingdom, into the church, you are a free man. Out there in the world, you might be called a master, and when you come into the kingdom, you are a slave of Christ. In the church, do not let another man call you boss or sir because of the pattern of this world, because of what happens outside. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says this, verse 21 and to 23. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's free man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Verses like this in the Roman world were revolutionary. They were explosive. They were contentious. Think of the sheer awkwardness of people getting together and having masters and slaves now in in one place where the master is acting like he's a slave and the slave is acting like he's a free man. All week out in society, they function very different. But when they gather together in the church, the master realizes, you know what? I need to bend down and I need to wash this man's feet. For Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter that I'm a master out there. In here, I follow my Jesus. And he came to serve and not to be served. Can you imagine for slaves? I would imagine it was equally difficult. You, your whole life, you've had other people tell you what to do. You come into church and you're told in Christ, you are a free man. I can imagine that would be very difficult. If you've been stuck like this and you're not allowed to really do anything without permission. Now you come to Christ and the church says to you, you are a free man. You're free to lead. You're free to tap your elder on the shoulder and say, hey, I have a word from the Lord. I mean, think about that. That's incredible to me. And yet at the same time, as you gain this freedom in Christ, you also have to be careful. Now that you see your master there, 
I cannot flaunt to my master that in the church I am now equal. That we are now co-heirs in Christ. I cannot let it swell up to be pride in my life. I can just imagine, I mean, we're planning a bringing share for next week. I mean, can you imagine what New Testament bringing shares were like? Picture that for a moment. You've got masters and you've got slaves. How do you determine who brings what for food? How do you sit down at a table? I mean, it's just awkward. You've got barbarians. How many of you want to have lunch with a barbarian today? (laughs) Yes. You've got Scythians. Scythians were actually considered the lowest form of barbarians. They were the most uncivilized people. They're the total opposite on the scale of, let's say, a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen, they were civilized. They had things together. Now they're coming together at a bring and share. Others have different ideas about what is clean and unclean. I mean, what do you do with the guy who brings the bacon? (laughs) Every week he keeps bringing bacon, and yet half the congregation is offended by it. It must have been an amazing time to be in the church. Amen? I mean, bringing chairs, yeah, that's a whole other level. Colossians, and, and I think part of the reason it would have been an amazing time to be in the church with masters and slaves and barbarians and Roman citizens and Greeks and Gentiles and Jews is because the church understood something fundamentally true about the kingdom. Colossians 3 verse 11 says this, Here, as in here in the church, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Amen? Does the church of Cape Town reflect this? That there is no longer Jew or Gentile, master or slave, barbarian, Scythian, colored, white or black? That is a picture of the kingdom. And if you want to take some time today to just, to just read a bit about how to do cross-cultural ministry, follow up these verses. Okay? I mean, th- these verses are it's pretty easy to see how they would apply cross-culturally. But then read the verses that follow. Verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. They're some of the best verses for laying a foundation for how to do cross-cultural ministry. And actually, it connects with something else that came out in the prayer time. And that is, the, you know, someone mentioned 1 Corinthians 13. And just doing it in love, in tenderheartedness, in grace, in being patient, in, um, yeah. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. I mean, that is good cross-cultural advice right there. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I really do wonder, if we got this right, Like that verse in Colossians. If we got this right, how would that fundamentally change us as partnering churches in Cape Town? You know, we agree in 412. One of the things I love about 412 is you've maybe even seen Will do this. I'll put the mic down. This isn't your church. This is the Bible. You want to take them and make them align together. When Will speaks, it's one of the things he often does. Is he says, if this is what your church is right now, and this is what the scriptures teaches the kingdom, and you try to, and you try to put them together, where do they not align? And then what do we need to do to make your church look like the kingdom as taught in the scriptures? And so if we were to do this, if we as Joshua generation say... This is our manual. This is what's teaching us how we function, how we live, how we move, how we breathe as a church. And we take a church like New Voice Assemblies of God that's coming here next week from Philippi. We take that church and they're willing to say the same thing. This is our manual. This is what we're building after. This is what we're seeking to to model. If we're both aiming for the same thing in the kingdom, surely with time, if we have the same goal and the same target and we have the same trajectory, even if we're starting in different places on how we think about things, surely with time we will become as of one mind and one purpose in the body of Christ. So much so that today I, I want you just to consider 
you know, you, lots of you probably just voted in the last week or two. I don't remember now. Was the election one week ago or two weeks ago? Uh, I can't vote. Yeah. Um, for the majority of Christians here in Cape Town, did our vote more closely resemble that of either the white community and neighborhood that we're from? Or did the way we vote more closely resemble our black brothers and sisters and how they voted? And same thing on the other side. Our black brothers and sisters, the way they voted, the way they think about politics, did they vote and do they think about politics more similar to their brothers and sisters in Christ on this side? Or more similar to the people who live around them in their area, in their community? And I could say the same thing on, another issue, on many different issues. If we were to go around in your community and we were to ask, what is your view first on farm murders? And then we were to ask your community, what are their views on farm murders? Would your views more align closer to that of your community? Or would they more align to your black brothers and sisters on the other side who are claiming the same word of God as our goal and as our target. If we truly put this, the word of God, and what the spirit of God reveals as our goal and as our target, I deeply believe with time, you might be living in Constantia, but with time, your political views, your views on education, society, your views on life are going to more reflect your brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi than they will your neighbor across the road in Constantia. Jesus is the king and he is building his kingdom. And cross-cultural church partnerships reflect that kingdom. Through cross-cultural church partnerships, God can both... Um, use us, and teach us. Through cross-cultural church partnerships, God can both use us and teach us. What I mean by that is, up till this point in my life, okay, I'm from Canada, I've now lived here in South Africa for six years, I have never had the privilege of spending significant time with a brother or sister in Christ from a persecuted country. I've met Christians from persecuted countries, but I've never walked closely. I've never walked closely with some believer from China. I regularly pray that, that I get to do that someday. I regularly pray that I get to do that someday. Why? Because that believer in China has had to go through trials and struggles and persecutions and perhaps jail time, you know, even just gathering this morning. We know that the Chinese church, when they want to gather like this, they have to take like four or five hours and they make secret plans. You guys go at this time. You guys go at this time. You guys go at this time. You know, they can't sit around and veg until church starts. Their whole day is centered around how do we get together as a body of Christ? We cannot neglect the gathering of the saints. This is a priority to us. And so their whole life becomes revolved around it. And so as a result, God has taught things God has been able to refine them through trials and tribulations so that they reflect his son in ways that I haven't been refined because I haven't walked down that same road of trial and tribulation. I believe I have so much to learn from a brother in China who has suffered and had to fight through persecution like that. And I pray, God, bring that person to me because I want to look more like your son, and I recognize you've been able to do a work in them that there hasn't been opportunity yet to do in my life. We have so much to learn from one another in partnership. Andrew, I won't say his last name this time, <laughs> um, he wrote this last month. He wrote, one of the great benefits of cross-cultural ministry is that if we look carefully with humility we can find which parts of our own theology and ministry is formed more by our prevailing culture than by scripture. 
Our prevailing culture has a terrible way of colonizing its way into our kingdom expressions. And instead of being ambassadors of God's kingdom, when we minister locally and travel cross-culturally, we, without realizing it, try to disciple people to our own colonized cultural expression. I'm loving seeing which parts of my former thinking have been colonized by my Western worldview. Why? Because I'm enjoying repenting to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Looking forward to doing some training on this so that we can only bring the kingdom. Through cross-cultural church partnerships, there is so much we can learn and give. We can both give and learn from one another. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He's saying, I want to see you because I want to give you something to grow you in your faith, and then I want to receive in return. I want to be edified. I want to be encouraged in my faith by what I see God has done in you. Now, unfortunately, doing this in a cross-cultural context simply requires far more persistence than doing this in our own context. So if you want to partner cross-culturally, if you want to um, come alongside and to grow and well as to teach, to give in a cross-cultural context, it's going to require persistence. In order for you to genuinely give and learn cross-culturally, you'll need to invest relationally. There is no shortcut. Trust built through relationships is the key. Trust built through relationships is the key, and that is why there's no shortcuts. And we see all over Paul's ministry that he not only comes to churches to to build, to equip, to teach. He comes to churches and it says he opens wide his heart to the church. And he asks them to return to open wide their heart to him. That is the approach we need to take in cross-cultural ministry. To open wide our hearts to one another. coming close to the end now. <laughs> I do often find that when I speak to people, the response I get is something like, oh, what could I give? How, you know, how, how, could I, how could I help those people? Or how could I learn from one another? Often I get responses along those lines. You know, actually, even a Josh Jen elder... <laughs> uh, said to me not too long ago, well, I'm happy to hear their churches are doing well. That's fantastic, you know, and may they keep doing well. And that was just kind of enough. And I'm like, no, there, there is more than this. There is more than this. I, I recently, actually last week, I was speaking um, in Philippi at a, at a gathering of young leaders in the church. And just before the meeting started, I was talking with one of the young guys about 412 and um, cross-cultural church partnerships. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, but what could I give? What could I give? And, and his look on his face, I can see what he's picturing. How am I, as a 20-year-old black man, going to have something to give or invest into my boss or my serve? I can see it on his eyes. It's just this look of defeatedness, like, I'm here. What could I ever give? And so I said to him, I said to him, well, can I ask you a couple questions? He said, yeah. I said, okay. When was the last time your church gathered together to pray with a family in your church and to practically help that family in your church because today they didn't have enough food to eat? And he said, well, that's almost every Sunday. I said, well, there you have something you can teach someone about. There's not many people in the churches on this side that today don't have enough food to eat. Someone else in the body of Christ that you need to reach out a hand in prayer and to assist. I have many, many times seen people in the township, brothers and sisters in Christ, who give not only in their excess, but literally 
They give away their food money for tomorrow for their brother to eat today. And I said to him, can I ask you another question? I said, when was the last time you spent the entire night in prayer? He said, well, I actually missed the last two all night prayers, but I guess three weeks ago. <laughs> and I said, you have something to teach us there. In the majority of Osa churches, there is a strength in the persistence and the pressing into God in prayer that we don't have on this side. And I said to him, when was the last time you prayed and fasted with no food and no water for at least three days? And he said, well, at the beginning of this year, our whole church did a dry fast, which means no food and no water for seven days. And I know that sounds insane, (laughs) but most churches do this. I'm not describing some strange practice. This is a normal practice in the church. And I said to him, you have something to teach us. Fasting is a major biblical discipline to help us draw close to God, to say, I will not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the word of God. You have learned something in fasting and in prayer that the majority of your brothers and sisters in Christ on this side haven't learned. James chapter 1, he writes this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then very similar, Romans chapter 3 says, What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? That's not the verse I'm looking for. (laughs) I think you got the right one, but I've written down a different one. So I wrote down, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that our sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. There's a huge benefit for us to both grow and to give cross-culturally. Because... People, God has brought them through different tests, different refining fires to mature them and grow them into the image of his son. And so there is so much that we can learn from one another in this. As we press in and we say, teach me what that's like. What is that like in your church when one of your families doesn't have enough food for today? Teach me what's that like. I need to learn a new level of faith and dependence on God's providence. I've never had to learn that level of faith and dependence on God's providence. So teach me what it's like. So I can at least have a little bit of that maturity in my life. And then I, the truth is I get the same response the other way. I'll have white people say to me, well, what could I possibly contribute? And there is so much you can contribute as well. It can be practical, like teaching someone how to make a budget. The majority of people in the township do not come from a high background, uh, a background of solid education and families. Teaching someone how to make a budget, how to use their money well. Teaching someone how to drive a car. Any church that we're going to partner with is going to have people in their church trying, striving. They're 30, 40, 50 years old, and they'd love to get a driver's license. That's something we can do. And then on a bigger scale, we can model family, especially fatherhood. Often when I'm in the township, I say the greatest stronghold that Satan has in the township is the brokenness of the family. And so many families on this side have grown up and experienced what it is like to know their dad. Never mind even having a a potential loving mom and dad, but even just to know their dad. And so you have learned something about the house of God. You have learned something about the family of God because it's been modeled in your family and in your community. And there's something there that you can model and demonstrate as we partner cross-culturally. You can also invite people into your home. You know, we love in Josh Chan to talk about Acts chapter 2. Those things we can do. You know, I'd love to just ask you, when is the last time you sat in a shack and had a meal with a family? When is the last time you invited a family from the township to come and eat at your table? 
And so this morning, my heart in sharing these things is that we have a king. And he has taught us what his kingdom ought to look like. And he said to us, I do not want your thinking to follow the pattern of this world. But instead, I want it to be transformed by my spirit. So that your mind is renewed and you can have the mind of Christ. That is my heart. That we would say, God, I want to tear down in my life anything that is not according to your kingdom, but is rather according to the pattern of my culture. Next week, we have an incredible practical opportunity with New Voice Assemblies of God coming to join us. And I would encourage you as they're here to get to know people. It might seem simple, but get to know people. Preferably, don't try to shake everybody's hand, but find one or two or three you can spend longer conversations with. It's better to go deeper with one or two or three than to make 40 new acquaintances. And as they come, it's not complicated. As we learn to love one another, there is grace to cover a multitude of sins. You know, if we think of that passage before about cross-cultural ministry, being patient with one another. And in closing, I, I do want to give us an opportunity to respond. And really, the opportunity is going to be if God has stirred something in you where you recognize that in my life, I am thinking, I am functioning, I am speaking to people, I am acting according to the pattern of this world. Then today, I want to give you a chance to respond and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I repent. God, I want to stop. I would love for someone to pray with me that my mind can be renewed by the Holy Spirit so that I can have the mind of Christ in how I see my brothers and my sisters and how I see image bearers of God in my city and in my country.